0: Good morning, everybody. Hey, good to see you guys. My name is Ryan Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer. Yeah. Pastor here at North Coast Calvary, if you don't know me. And we have a real treat for you guys. Mark Freestat's going to be teaching on the parables. And I really selected him for this passage. And you're in for a treat. The best sermon I've ever heard on this passage ever. It is a home run message. So get yourself ready for a great teaching. You don't want to have your pen and your notebook ready. Okay, but before we go into that, um, number one, we ha- we had a re- I had some really good news and sad news. Sad news is we're completely out of Mark books. The good news is we sold them all out. And people have just gobbled them up, 1,500 books gone. We've got new ones waiting for you. So if you didn't get one, if you know someone who really wants one, we're selling them in the cafe. Feel free to go over there and get your copy. But what a great problem. People are grabbing them, inviting friends to do it with them, doing it with their small groups. Family members are coming to church who have never come to church before. Neighbors and friends are coming to church who have never come to church before because they were bought a book, handed it, and said, hey, would you want to do this with me? So if you haven't tried that, you might want to try it. If there's somebody in your life that you've been hoping would come, buy them a book and say, hey, would you consider doing this with us and learn about Jesus? Uh, I want to share with you a testimony From the way that God's been using this book to kind of bring us together as a church, get us on the same page together. So listen to this story. The study journal for the book of Mark has allowed me to slow down when reading the word of God. And this person goes on to say that I realize I've been rushing at times through the word and missed important things Jesus wants to say to me. I want his pace over my life. And going through the journal together in church opens my mind and soul to really digest it and see it in a new light. It helps to focus my always busy mind. Can you relate to that? Ever find your mind just wandering? No, this has been helping people. But get this. Most importantly, I've been bringing a friend with me to church the past few weeks who was going through something in their life. Which I believe has opened a door for Jesus. They shared that the journal during church has helped them to not feel so lost when reading the Bible. Isn't that amazing? And that she said for the first time, her mind is not wandering. And recently, this friend dedicated her life to following Christ here with us, one of our weekend services. Let's give a round of applause for God. And God is just so good. And when we invite people to see Jesus, to meet him firsthand through the word of God, we are making an opening for people to encounter Jesus. So let's do that this morning as we open God's word together. You don't need to stand this morning. Remain seated. It's a longer passage. Take notes. Highlight while I read it to you. Mark chapter 4 verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seen but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, "Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable?" The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes For other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others like seeds sown on good soil. Hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Duh. Okay, that's my addition. Instead, don't you put it on its stand for... Whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smell of all seeds on earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And with many parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's give a big round of applause for Mark Freestack. Come on, let's welcome this guy. One of those. All right. Thanks for that
1: setup, Ryan. The best message on parables he'd ever heard. You know what he told me backstage? Right before we came out, he said, I've never heard a sermon preached on parables before. So, whatever that counts for, I don't know. Yes. So, sometimes when um, you're assigned to preach and they give us the passage you're going to do, sometimes you get a passage that you read through and you go, this is so easy, it's hard. (laughs) This is one of the few parables that Jesus teaches that he then gives the explanation. So you're like, well, we could get up here and just read it through and close the Bible and be done and walk away because everything is right here. And then you wonder how you're gonna stretch this into 30 minutes or more. But lucky for us, there's verses 10, 11, and 12 where Jesus says some really tricky things about people hearing and not understanding and seeing and not getting it and whatever so thank you jesus for the job security there actually is something to talk about in a message like this today and that is this and that is how jesus used parables and why he used parables and ultimately what he was pointing towards is the kingdom of god and understanding that concept a little bit so we shall do our best with that this morning now If you recall, back in Mark chapter 1, one of the first things that Jesus says when he appears on the scene is, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. And then he gives the kingdom of God by demonstration before proclamation. That's important. So we get three chapters of Jesus demonstrating the kingdom of God by performing miracles, by healing people, by casting out demons. And it's not really until chapter 4 that he begins proclamation. And that's probably a good pattern for you and I, isn't it? That as we think about people who don't believe or don't know Jesus or are unfamiliar with these concepts like the kingdom of God, let's all do demonstration before Proclamation. Before we come at, each, at, at people with all kinds of answers and all sorts of words, let's do demonstration in the way that we can. And Jesus does that. And now in chapter 4, it appears that everybody is hooked on the magic and the power that he evidently carries with him. And so they crowd in on him, and he has to get in a boat and row a little ways from the shore so that they don't crush him. And he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the way that he does it is this, with parables. And the parables confuse them. Now, how many of us like to read parables? When we read the Gospels, how many of us find parables to be kind of life-giving? We, we like them, they're visual, they help us understand. How many of us are confused by parables? And we maybe read through them really quickly, or we gloss over them when we don't prefer them. Yeah, because parables themselves, are they are all sufficient, and they're also frustratingly insufficient at the same time. And that's because of the nature of what a parable is. So parable has that little uh, prefix on it, para. And the word para means to come alongside. So if you maybe work as a paraprofessional in a school setting, you are coming alongside a child who needs extra help. If you draw a line and then you bring another line equally alongside of it, you have a parallel line, yeah. And so the way that a parable works is it is a story. It's a familiar story that people can relate to. A familiar story brought alongside an unfamiliar concept. And there's that point of connection where people go, oh, oh, okay. I, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Someone who was really big on using parables, besides Jesus, is the guy on Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary. Mr. Wonderful. Wonderful. He's pompous and he doesn't want to give away his money. And I saw him one time say this. There were two guys pitching their business idea and he said, guys, guys, have you ever heard of a Viking funeral? They're like, no. He said, the Vikings used to load ships full of wood. Then they would pile the dead bodies on top, light it on fire and push it out to the water. You guys are on that boat. (laughs) That's what he said to them. And the truth of it shocks them. Now what he's saying is there is no way your business idea is getting off the ground and you're not getting one cent from me. And that's him telling a parable, okay? A story that he brings alongside another real-life situation in order to pack a punch. If you asked me how my week was this week, I might say this. You know how when you go into the car repair shop and you're gonna get an oil change for 50 bucks and you walk out with 10 more things fixed and you've spent 1,500 bucks? That was my week this week. (laughs) See, I've just used a parable. Now, have I told you how my week was this week? No, kind of, okay? Emotionally, we can all relate to that feeling of walking into the car repair shop and we intend for it to be quick and inexpensive and uncomplicated and it becomes really complicated really quick, okay? Parables aren't allegories. In an allegory, every part of the story matches the real life thing. So if I was using an allegory, then I would say, like, you know, the fact that my brake pads were worn down and I needed new ones—that corresponded to uh, my team had all these deadlines that we had to meet. And then, like, this cracked hose inside the engine, well, that was because I've got this class coming up for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders that they take with their parents called "What's the Story?" And in six weeks, it'll give you the full story of the Bible from beginning to end and make the Bible very accessible to you. Shameless plug. That really is starting tomorrow night, but. <laughs> But I'm not telling you an allegory, am I? I'm just telling you a parable. I'm just saying, hey, can you relate to this? You ever gone in, and then the bill is like way bigger than you expect. And what I'm communicating by that is I expected this week to be simple, and it wasn't simple. It just quickly spiraled into all of these things. And I've used a parable to instruct you, okay? So when Jesus uses parables to shed light on the kingdom of God, they are all sufficient, and at the same time, they are frustratingly insufficient, aren't they? When we interpret parables, then, we don't focus on the nitty-gritty details. There are no hidden meanings, okay? Parables are meant to be understood. We take it for the central point, or the illustration, or even the emotion that it expresses, and we bring it alongside an unfamiliar situation and say, Where's, where does this match up here? How does this help me understand in a way that I didn't see before? Because as we'll see, Jesus does want to be understood. Now, With all that said, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, is one of the few parables that Jesus does explain. And he explains it kind of like an allegory. A lot of things in his fictional story uh, that they're supposed to relate to, sowing seed on the ground, and it's on the path, and it grows up in the weeds, and some of it makes it, and some of it bears fruit, and some of it doesn't. And he goes, this matches this, and this matches this, and this matches this. And he gives us the explanation. And so, so, so we understand it but not exhaustively. He doesn't tell us exactly who the sower is. Is it God the Father? Is it Jesus? If it's Jesus, then what happens when he goes to heaven? Is it the Bible? Oh, it's the Bible, okay, which passage in the Bible? See, he's not trying to do that. So, So the point is don't drive yourself crazy trying to read the hidden meanings of parables. Don't buy someone's book who says they've cracked the Da Vinci Code of Parables. They haven't. Jesus meant to be understood, as we're going to see as we get deeper into chapter uh, chapter 4, but we do need to talk about verses 10, 11, and 12, because that's a bit of a curveball from Jesus. It looks like Jesus is being difficult when he says this. He gets alone with the 12, the disciples, and the others around him, and they asked him about the parables. Jesus, what's you, this was not really clear to us. And he tells them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then he goes on to give... The explanation. So, 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 so it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm going to explain everything to you, but not to them. And we go, what's up with that? Doesn't Jesus want people to follow him? Doesn't he want them to believe in him? So why wouldn't he share all the goodies that he's sharing with his disciples with everybody else? It sounds like Jesus is being tricky. Well, he is not being tricky. Because if we look at verse 21, he said to them, it doesn't say who them is, but I strongly believe it's still the disciples, not the crowds. He says, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? No, you put it up on its stand. It's dark, dark in those days at night. So you're not going to take a lamp and even put it low where it's not going to cast light. You're going to put it up here. And that's what he's saying about his teaching. He wants everybody to know and experience and believe and step into the kingdom of God. He wants that. So how do we account for his statements in verses 11 and 12? Okay, part of understanding this is to understand that Mark changes the sequence of some things in chapter four. And and the reason we know that is because first it says he's in the boat and he's telling the parable of the sower and the soils to everybody. And then it says later when he's with the 12, They asked him about the parables. So that's a later time. And then we've got him talking about the lamp on the stand. Then we've got verses 24 and 25 where he talks about the measure that you use. I'll come back to that one because that one's important. Then he tells the parable of the scattered seed Then he tells the parable of the mustard seed, and we assume that those are to the crowd as well. So what Mark probably did is in order to put the explanation of the parable of the sower closer to the parable itself, he just sort of juxtaposes it. He moves it around which then can confuse us because when he says to them, who's them? Is it the crowd? Is it the people? But here's what I think happened. I think the key is the very end of the passage, verses 33 and 34. It says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Verse 34, He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Okay. Okay. So why? Why again would Jesus talk to the crowd in parables where they're going to kind of sort of get it but they're not going to get everything but with his disciples he explains everything. Possible answers. Number 1, Jesus is being a jerk. I don't think that's what it is. It's possible, not plausible. Number 2, Jesus loves the disciples more than he loves others. He chose them to follow him and be with him before sending them out, so he's just going to give them more of the good stuff than these outsiders. Possible? I don't think it's plausible. Number three, maybe Jesus is actually, maybe he can't share all of it. Maybe he is constrained by prophecy because those verses in, in verse 11 and 12 come from Isaiah. They'll be seeing but not perceiving and hearing but not understanding and so maybe Jesus is sent by God the Father and he cannot share those things it's like a matter of election or something like that hmm? possible but i think the better answer i think the best answer is this the reason that Jesus speaks to the crowds in parables and more specifically his to his disciples is that Jesus understood the hearts of all people and the importance of belief in receiving spiritual truth. His disciples already believed. You know how Jesus knew that they believed? Because they followed him. They left their lives and their prerogatives and their priorities, and they gave their lives to him and followed him. Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that they believed. And as the one who knows the hearts of all people, Jesus knew that there were at least some in the crowd who did not believe, and it wouldn't have mattered how much explanation he gave, they were not going to get it. Because something changes inside of you when you are determined to believe. When you believe, it switches on something inside of you that you now receive spiritual truth and digest it and live it out in a different way than you did before. Remember, in Mark 1.15, the first thing Jesus says is, the kingdom of God has come near, and then he says, repent and believe the good news. He doesn't say, the kingdom of God has come near, and now sit for six months under my teaching, and I'll explain every little bit of it, and then at the end, I'll invite you to believe. That's what we often do from the stage. We explain, 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 and then we close by saying, now will you believe? But it's striking, isn't it, that Jesus shows up on, on scene and says, the kingdom of God has arrived, the kingdom of God is near, and it is me, repent and believe. Repent and believe in what, Jesus? What, what, what are you talking Repent and believe, which the disciples did, and then little by little, he explains everything to them. Later on in Mark chapter 9, there's going to be a boy possessed by a demon. His dad is going to come to Jesus, and Jesus says, If you can, will you heal my boy of this affliction? Jesus (laughs) says, If you can. (laughs) Everything is possible to people who believe. When we go to the book of John, over a hundred times the word believe appears there. Let me just read to you some examples. We don't have these on screen. John 1.11, John, in the preamble to his gospel, says Jesus came to his own people, but they didn't receive him as Messiah, but to all who did believe in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. John chapter 2, Jesus changes water into wine, and John says this is the first of the signs that he performed, and his disciples believed in him. They crossed over that line. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on them. And at the end of John's gospel, there's the story of Thomas, the disciple. He says, I won't believe until I see the nail marks and touch them with my own fingers. And Jesus says, here you go, here it is. Now, Now stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, oh, I do, you're the Lord. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's why I tend to believe that verses 24 and 25 are for the crowd, not while he was just alone with the disciples. In 24, 25, Jesus says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. I think this is a passage about belief and faith that Jesus is saying to the crowds, if you come to me with an empty thimble full, that's all I'm gonna give you. But if you come to me with an empty bushel basket or a giant uh, pod storage container that you fill up and it sits on your driveway before you move, I'm gonna fill that and more because of the size. The size of the measure that you bring to me, that's what's going to be given out to you. Outside of the Gospels, you know, there's, there's many mentions of what faith can do when it's in place. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's extraordinary. In order to even come to God, in order to even bow your head in prayer, you've got to have at least a smidgen of belief that there's a God up there listening to what you say. 2 Corinthians 4, four: the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so the opposite is also true, Right? that once you believe, you're not blind anymore. Your eyes are open, and you can see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. I've been meeting lately with uh, a young guy who grew up at this church on college, and he reached out to me and said, "Uh, I'm struggling with some things in the Christian faith. I'm not sure that I believe them. Can we have some conversations? I said, yeah, of course. And so we've been talking back and forth, and he's pitching really, really hard questions about like free will and stuff like that. And I'm happy to sit with him and answer his questions and take him into the Bible. But at some point, I am going to need to say to this, this guy, buddy, you need to believe. And you need to decide if you can believe Because if you can believe, you're gonna receive this truth that I'm sharing with you in a totally different way than if the wall of skepticism is up and strong. Something gets unlocked in you the moment that you believe. In the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, ministry where I often am on the weekends, when I'm setting up a teaching for kids, I map out in my mind, here are things that I want them to know, and here are things that I want them to believe. Because the no part is, I I can do that. I can explain, illustrate, use object lessons, and I can almost guarantee they'll walk out knowing those four or five things. Belief, mm, that's a whole different animal. Because I can't engineer what kids are going to end up believing. And if you're a parent here this morning, I want to take the pressure off of you. Because you can't engineer what your kids believe. Say that with me if you're a parent. I can't engineer what my kids believe. You can't. You can set the table for them. You can influence them and shape them. You can pour inputs into them, and you should do all of those things. But in the end, believing is an exercise of the will. And kids from a really little age have really strong wills. And they are going to believe what they believe as we try to shape them, but their beliefs are their own. That's why you can't understand your way into the kingdom of God. And that's probably why Jesus began with the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. It is not explicitly a parable about the kingdom of God. Some of his parables are. Some of his parables, he starts out by saying, the kingdom of God is like this. And then he tells a familiar story that he brings alongside an unfamiliar concept. But he doesn't do that here. At the beginning of chapter four, when he begins proclaiming, proclaiming about the kingdom of God, he says, listen, that's the actual word. Listen, everybody. I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of God, and some of you aren't going to like it. And some of you aren't going to get it. I almost think the parable of the sower and the, or the parable of soils was more for Jesus' disciples than it was for the crowd. Because he's telegraphing to them, I'm gonna share about myself and my mission and where I came from, what I'm all about, and a lot of these people aren't gonna get it. Don't be surprised. See, they were bought in. They believed. But a lot of people won't believe. Hey, magic man, where are you from? What are you all about? And Jesus in his mind is thinking, you think that I can explain it and explain it and analyze it and pick it apart, and that's going to get you across the finish line of faith, and I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. You've got to believe me and the one who sent me, and then there's a time for explanation and all these details that you're missing are gonna begin to fall into place like a perfectly executed game of Jenga. Everything just fits together because you first believed. So, in summary, Jesus is not being cagey here with people. He's not playing games with them. He wants to be seen. He wants the light way up on the stand, and he wants everybody to believe, and yet he knows that until some people believe and commit in belief, in belief, he could talk and talk and talk and talk and explain all day, and they're not going to get it. So how's your belief? What's the size of the measure that you're bringing to Jesus? We're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about never having questions. We're not talking about not trying to fit all the pieces and the doctrines together. We should do those things. But St. Augustine, or Augustine, who lived in about the 300s AD, North African, he eventually became a bishop, he called it faith-seeking understanding. That was the Christian life to him. Faith-seeking understanding. And we so often get it backwards. We want to understand everything. Okay, Jesus, then I'll believe. That's not what Jesus, that's not the call that Jesus gave. Jesus said, "Repent and believe the good news. Follow me." and then to His disciples, he makes everything clear. So now, as we go on, uh, the chapter does the parable of the scattered seed and the parable of the mustard seed. and you probably want me to unpack those for you and explain those to you. And I'm not going to, because Jesus didn't. So how can I do that? So instead what I'm gonna challenge you to do is sit with one of those parables this week or another parable from a different section of the gospel and, and what I'll give you instead right now in the next couple minutes is some guidelines for how to approach reading parables so that they have hopefully their intended meaning. So number one, parables, and we'll put these up on screen, parables are meant to make you think And because parables come from outside of our historical context, sometimes we have to think extra hard about them before they really register with us. I like, there's a spiritual practice that you can do with kids called godly play. And in godly play, you tell different types of stories from the Bible, but one of those genres is parables. And I like how in godly play, how you introduce a parable story to kids. You have your materials in a gold box like this. And you start by saying something like this. I wonder what this could be. It's covered in gold. Gold things are usually really valuable. I wonder if it could be a parable. These parables are really valuable. And it almost looks like a present. You know, parables are like presents that were given to you a long time before you were born. You didn't do anything to earn them. They were just given to you. It has a lid on it. Sometimes things with lids on it can be really hard to get into. But that's okay. If you just keep coming back to it, eventually the parable will open up to you. And then you tell them the parable story. I like that. We have to think about parables we've got to take our time and slow down and sometimes parables are just one or two verses so we can gloss over them and we don't take the time that we need to to sink into the context of that parable because this is number two about approaching parables parables are all cultural again it's a familiar story or situation brought alongside an unfamiliar one So that parable I told you about going to the car repair shop, expecting one thing and you end up doing 10 things, I would never tell that parable in front of a group of kids. They can't relate to it. They don't own cars. Okay, so that works with you, it wouldn't work with them. And Jesus is the same way. His parables were cultural. People would immediately understand the reference points, the characters. We've got to do a little work on that because it's a different culture than ours. So Google it, quite honestly, okay? and find out what he's referring to in the familiar story. Uh, thirdly, parables are visual. So sometimes you need to read the text and then you've got to close your eyes and create it visually. A mustard seed and it's sprouting up. It's becoming a tree with all these branches and all the birds come perch inside and you make it visual for yourself. Fourthly, parables are largely agricultural. Wah, wah for us because we don't live in that world, most of us. But reflect as you read the agricultural parables on the miracle of plant growth. If you saw my weekly huddle that went out on Thursday this week in preparation for this weekend, you know, I showed you the little flower bed in our backyard where my kids and I have had no luck at all getting anything (laughs) to sprout and grow. We'll keep trying. And then sure enough, on Friday, somebody gave my son sunflower seeds and he's just begging to put them in there. And I'm like, it's not going to work. But when you do have success growing a plant, don't you feel good? You feel good and you feel almost like in awe. Like you're not like proud of yourself. Like, oh, I'm so clever. I watered it. But you're like, (laughs) that thing started like this and now it's feeding me tomatoes and fruit. And like there's just, agriculture is really, really cool. And Jesus chose agricultural metaphors because that's a picture of the spiritual life. We do some stuff, but the growth comes from God, 1 Corinthians 3. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So that's why so many of the parables are agricultural. And then fifth, keep in mind that parables are mostly aimed at shedding light on this concept of the kingdom of God. So we want to spend a few minutes here at the end talking about the nature of the kingdom of God because Jesus' point in using parables wasn't to get us confused or tripped up in what is this hidden meaning? No, no, no. It was to point us at the reality of the kingdom of God. Okay, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, number one, is a spiritual reality. Spiritual, you can't see it. You can't put your hands on it. Even words fail to describe it, and yet it is nonetheless real. It's a parallel reality that's working right now alongside of of your earthly existence. You You can live in, what is that called? Parallel worlds or whatever? It's like a sci fi concept, but it's actually real. It's actually real in what Jesus is describing. Your earthly life in an earthly body with earthly concerns, and yet at the same time, he comes and shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is near, and it's open to you. So you can live life on two planes of existence right now by stepping into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the will of God expressed here on earth through earthly things like people, through earthly ways and earthly institutions. It's not heaven. It is the kingdom of God, the will of God, the values of God right here on earth. Now, what happens is Jesus shows up and says, here it is, the kingdom of God is near, it is me, and he starts bringing the power of God, which is part of the kingdom of God. He starts healing, starts casting out demons. He even heals a guy on the Sabbath. Jesus, how could you do that? And people get hooked. I want this magic in my life. And people get hooked on the magic of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, don't stop at the magic of God when Jesus wants to push you all the way to the kingdom of God because those are two different things. See, if we have our faith only in the magic of God, then Jesus is just a genie who showed up in the world and said, here I am, I can do anything, what do you want? Make your list for me, I'll make all your dreams come true. And that is not the gospel. If our faith is in the kingdom of God, then Jesus is not a genie, he's the king. And like any good king, he sits on a throne and he surveys the realm that he rules and he says, oh, that's not right, we gotta fix that. Ah, project needed there. Improvement needed there. Ah, let's step in and fix problems and build the realm to be what I envision it to be. And that's the expression of the the, the will of God on earth, the kingdom of God. If you were going to create a kingdom, take take a minute and imagine, if you were going to create a kingdom and you get to be the ruler, how would you do it? And the answer is, I already have. And you already have. And it's called the kingdom of self. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we can put the kingdom of God where Jesus is the king on the back burner and just live every single day in the kingdom of self. So the task, whether you're not yet a believer or you're already a believer, is to believe and strengthen your belief that you can actually take the hands off the wheel a little bit and let Jesus be the king because he gets to be the king in the kingdom of God. Does the concept of importance exist in the kingdom of God when it comes to people? Yeah, it does. Jesus talks about that in Mark 10:45. what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God. Does money and, and, and the concept of f- stewarding financial resources exist in the kingdom of God? Yeah, Jesus told a parable about that, the parable of the talents. Is there mercy for sinners who repent and not just this unrelenting judgment in the kingdom of God? Yeah, Jesus told some parables about that too. Does the concept of mercy for other people exist in the kingdom of God? Yeah, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And on and on and on it goes. So see, as Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, as he proclaims the kingdom of God, what he's trying to do is reorient our perspective and our values so that while we continue to live in the world and we will continue to live in the world until physically we die and and our souls are taken to heaven, we can also adopt the ethics of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because selfish rest is an earthly concern. But wholeness and Christlikeness and redemption for all of God's creation, that's a kingdom concern. Jesus says, new wine needs new wineskins. Because holding on to tradition for tradition's sake, that's an earthly concern. That's a power play. But making room for the supremacy of Christ in all things, even if that means we've got to reorder some things or upset the apple cart, that's a kingdom concern. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but a sick. So self-importance and self-righteousness, that's an earthly concern. But brokenness and humility, that's a kingdom concern. He says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Sin is. Is a kingdom concern. Just mistakes, that's an earthly concern. But sin and the lasting damage and the brokenness that gets woven into, oh, it's just the way it is, oh, that's a kingdom concern. And Jesus wants to get in there and root it out. Valuing the fruit of the Spirit in the world is actually an earthly concern. Everybody wants love and joy, and peace, and patience. Everybody, believer, non-believer, whatever. everybody values those things. But inviting the Spirit's presence and cultivating its development, also known as spiritual growth, in you, the tree or the plant, so that you will grow into something beautiful, and then, and then those fruits that are mentioned just pop out as byproducts of the work of the Spirit. That takes time. And that's a kingdom concern. So we need to stop tiptoeing around just desiring the power of God and the magic of God, important as it is. And we got to swallow the whole kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is really going for. Now, I was going through a season uh, recently where I felt like I was fighting all my battles alone. Have you ever felt that alone? You just got so much going on and you just feel it raining down on you and you just feel like you've got no resources to reach out to. You're just slogging through it alone. You ever felt that? You ever been there? Yeah. So I went in um, for Monday prayer that they have every Monday in the chapel uh, in the afternoons. And Jeff prayed for me. And without telling him anything in prayer, he said to me, you've got troubles I nodded my head, and he said, but God is with you in the troubles. That's something I'd forgotten, because sometimes we use like our spiritual life or our spiritual relationship with God as like this thing, so maybe we never miss a day of quiet time or we pray at night before we go to bed, but then we go out into the great wide world and we just fight all these battles all on our own. And Jeff's reminder was a good one, and I'm going to link it here to the kingdom of God in just a second. You've got troubles, and God is with you in your troubles. So I went home, and I jotted in a little notebook here. Actually, I'm going to show you, uh, here's Ryan's picture from a couple weeks ago. Okay, it's, uh, you know, that's all right. And then, uh, and then here's my picture. Yeah. <laughs> so much better, right? Okay, but yeah, yeah, all right, we get it, we get, yeah, all right, okay. So so here's me, fighting battles alone, and I'm just down in the weeds, and everything seems daunting, and the rain is on top of me, and I'm unprotected. And then when Jeff prayed that for me, God is with you in the troubles, I, then this is the other side of the picture. <laughs> That's the parallel reality of the kingdom of God that Jesus invites you into. Now, you still got to deal with those troubles. You still live in the earthly world, but it's like, you're, it's like you got some perspective. You're raised up. When you're down on the ground, those weeds, just they can get so high, you can't even see what's beyond there. You can't even see what to attack or where to focus your attention. And in the kingdom of God, it's like God is under you. He's around you. He's going before you. And even when I go to sleep at night, God is fighting for me. God is advocating on my behalf. God is at work even when I can't work, when I have to rest. I thought, that's kind of a picture of the kingdom of God. That at the same time as we exist in the earth, God scoops us up to give us perspective on what's really going on in the world. Because we can easily get lost in the weeds. And the truth is, go back to the picture one more time. The truth is, as human beings, we don't need a bailout. We need a whole different kind of existence. A bailout is the lawnmower comes and mows these weeds down, and somebody stronger comes, and lifts this dumbbell out of the way, and yay! But I'm still on the ground fighting the next battle alone. And where am I going to be in six months? You don't need a bailout of your problems. You need a new kind of existence. That's what Jesus invites you into and offers to you with your membership in the kingdom of God. And the membership fee has already been paid. It's not free. It's not free. But it's already been paid but there's still a cost. It's like if I said to you, I've got an all expenses paid vacation for you to Hawaii. You have to leave tomorrow. Somebody said that to me, I would say, I have so many big meetings and priorities coming up this week, I can't leave tomorrow. But see, accepting Jesus' offer to believe, believing is a form of dying, did you know that? And Christ calls us to die every day when we follow him. That's what the expression take up your cross and follow means. That we die every day. Believing is a form of dying. So that we are giving up control over, no, 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 no. It has to be my way. And going, okay. I'm not sure what you're gonna do with this, Jesus, but... I guess I trust you enough to handle it in a way that's bigger than me. And that's where belief comes into play. Believing is a form of dying. Are you ready to die today? Are you ready to increase your belief? Because by the measure that you use, it will be measured unto you. Now, one of the things that we have historically done in Christianity to express this unseen relationship but very real relationship that we are in the world but we are spiritually connected to the creator of the universe and to God incarnate who came and lived in the person of Jesus Christ one of the things that we do to remember that connection is the act of communion because with communion we take an, an unseen intangible reality Christ in us And we act it out in a way. We we live it with our hands and with our mouths. So if you got one of these cups as you came in today, you can take it right now. And if you didn't, just raise your hand. And there's some folks who come around and they'll give you one of these little cups. And these cups are a little tricky. You can't see, but at the top, there's a clear membrane. And so you want to just lift the very clear part on the top. And underneath that is going to be a round white wafer. So you take that out and hold that in one hand and then with the other hand you can open the juice just far enough to drink it. So at this church, we hold to a a memorial view of communion, meaning it's meant to help us remember the fact that Jesus sat with his own disciples the night before he was crucified, and they were eating the Passover. So this was going to be a ritual meal that would continue on as we continue to take communion. And, And he said, whenever you take this bread and break it, remember my body being broken for you. And so whenever you eat the bread, you'll do it in remembrance of me. So now let's take the bread in remembrance of Jesus who died for you. And then he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you take of it, do it in remembrance of me. going to pray and then sing a chorus, and then I've got a little challenge for you at the end as we go today. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, that the reality of the kingdom of God is so much bigger than, than even you were in walking the earth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's your best intentions for all humanity and all human systems. It's the plans that are so much higher than our plans. It's the priorities that we so often get wrong. We fumble. It's the best. The kingdom of God is the best. And so we pray that we would seek the best for our own lives, but for the lives of everyone. Because we're all in this together as the body of Christ. Help us see the opportunities and the realities of the kingdom of God in our everyday lives as well, that we can join you in the great mission that you have for us. And now we sing with our hearts, from our believing hearts to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.